You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So for years and years, America, however right or wrong this reality was, the perception was that this was a Christian nation. Uh, Now, truth be told, there is no such thing as a Christian nation because Christian is not a uh, an adjective. It is a noun. Uh, so Christian can't describe a nation because it is a person. But what I believe was meant by this statement was that many of the so-called values that were said to be innately American were said to be innately Christian, and those respective values didn't really upset the status quo, and so most of the rest of the country, whether Christian or not, attended to those values without issue. And many Americans identified with the goods of Christianity, like church-going and moral self-restraint. And this way of life modeled good citizenship. And this kind of living could stand up against the powers of communism and fascism and whatnot. But of course, somewhere along the way, the winds sort of changed, and they happened somewhat both immediately and over time. But during the revolution of the 60s and 70s, stuff started to come to light. Uh, The latent effects of Jim Crow laws began to surface. The war in Vietnam didn't appear as cut and dry as the previous world wars. The traditional family values included a type of misogyny that excused sexual harassment in the workplace and sanctioned unequal pay for women. And thus there was a shift from a type of Christianity being center stage to it still being relevant but losing its relevancy instead of gaining it. But what was true then is definitely true now. You could almost go around and speak of God and country with immense reception, but there would be great separation once you mentioned Christ and Him crucified. The two statements did not mean the same thing. And looking back, we can probably see this because at some level this is still very true. The problem was that from the beginning, Christian values were always more popular in American culture than the Christian gospel. And in 2023, our world is very different, but the message has not changed, and neither has its ability to make us all a little uncomfortable. In places like Knoxville, or at least certain pockets of it, you still have some major clout if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. But more and more, even in a place like ours, You feel like you have to defend Jesus to justify why you follow him, or you feel a bit more sensitive and a lot more uncomfortable when conversations come up around the ethics and the lifestyle that Jesus modeled. And that certainly is true for places outside Knoxville. And so here we stand, followers of Jesus losing things like clout, political influence, governmental power, cultural say, and we have a choice to make. Do we engage in the proverbial clash of what we call the culture wars, seeking to either claim or reclaim a sense of previous dominance or a sense of future dominance, or do we seek to recapture what life might look like as a creative minority? There are very few places in the story of God where the people of God are living as the movers and the shakers of society. It's predominantly from the place of the edge, the voice in the wilderness, the prophet not welcome in his own neighborhood, the Israelites, the insignificant house churches amidst one of the greatest world powers, 
It's from those places where God seemingly does his most subversive work. And the call is to start from that place. Now we are continuing on our series in 1 Peter, and we enter today into a part of his letter that is more specific instructions. Uh, And today on the docket is citizenship. Now we are not in the same position uh, as the early church by any means. And so the instructions given to them are meant to be read with some context in mind. But it's the posture that they take as followers of Jesus where the call is the same. So here's what I want us to remember. The exhortation that Peter gives a few verses earlier that was not read is this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So because you are a chosen priesthood, your call is to live a holy life. And Peter says that it's the will of God for his people to live holy lives under governing authorities. Because he says later, the people of God are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. So disciples of Jesus, in lieu of their freedom, are called to live in accordance with governmental order. Because the inverse of order is chaos. Now, the emperor at the time of this letter was most likely Nero, although it is not for certain. And it's important to note that the beheadings and the physical violent persecutions that we sort of have come to know in the early church are not happening at this time uh, when this letter is circulating. However, Nero is in power and he is not friendly to Christians. So hearing the call to be subject to Nero, who, by the way, sees himself as a god because every modern or every ancient emperor or ruler saw themselves as a living deity to be worshipped. And and there, uh, there are few rulers in the history of the world who would deserve less loyalty based on their personal disdain for Christians than Nero. And yet, the call is for the Lord's sake to be subject to those in power. Now, remember, this little minority of people is not living in a Christianized world, which is, by the way, the world that we are living in. Uh, Their ethics are not the same. The worldview is not the same. And as they come into relationship with the living God, they are looking to others on how to live as disciples in a very non-Christian world. And a world that opposes the fact That a common man is said to have been raised from the dead and is thus being worshipped. And when I say that we're living in a Christianized world, what I mean is that things like human rights, uh, even things like marriage, um, dignity, value, inherent people's worth, all of those ideas, by the way, are Christian ideas. Um, If you go back in history and look uh, at how... People have been treated through the literal millennia. Um, The Imago Dei, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, talking about slaves and wives. The fact that those people are being addressed in the letter to 1 Peter would have been an offense to anyone reading that because they were not deemed as human beings. And Christianity comes along and says, 
Actually, the Imago Dei resides in every single one. And so now we live in a culture that deeply values human dignity uh, just with ignorance to how we became a culture that loves human dignity. Uh, It is because that is inherently the idea of Genesis 1. So for a community that is living under some threat of the Roman Empire, Peter is addressing the question, how do we live? How do we live now? And honestly, a lot of scholars have commented on the fact that these newfound followers of Jesus found such freedom in Christ, particularly, again, those who didn't have any freedom before, that such liberation from the internal tyranny of sin and such liberation from the external tyranny of social status would inevitably lead to a social revolution. And thus Peter exhorts them, the government and its local expressions are meant to celebrate those who do good, punish those who do evil, and the call on your life as free people is to come under their authority. Now, if I can bridge the context of their time and our time, In Rome, religion and politics were inseparable. When you got one, you got both of them. So I want to lay a little bit of a foundation to who are some of the important parties in the time of the New Testament. Now, there is not, by the way, a one-to-one correlation what was happening then and what was happening now. However, there is some overlap and intersection, and contextually, I think it makes sense. So there were a a lot of different Jewish groups within the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament. But one of them was the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple. You might know Caiaphas, the high priest, who was a Sadducee. In all, they were pretty unpopular and somewhat unkind. Uh, Many of them were seen as cruel judges. And when Jesus disrupted the financial system in the temple... It was the Sadducees who sought to arrest and condemn him. And James, the brother of Jesus, was killed by a Sadducean priest. So there's one people group. They mostly rejected the Old Testament and stuck to the Pentateuch as the only thing that was really from God. They were keen on principles, less keen on inspiration of the entire Hebrew canon of Scripture. And in today's terms, they would be considered the progressives. Then we have what I think most of us know as the Pharisees. They are the most well-known. They sought to live peaceably within cities. They were kind of the in Rome, but not of Rome, as it were. Uh, They obeyed the laws of the land, but seeking as diligently and as rigorously as possible to apply every iota of the Mosaic law to their neighbor in hopes that their works might merit them deliverance. And every time you see or hear of the Pharisees in the Gospels, you mostly see them living very nitpicky lifestyles that seeks to elevate their status and diminish others. We would see them today as the conservatives. Then there were zealots. The zealots were a group of people who were convinced that the Messiah had come to kick Rome out and take over as emperor, and they were willing to resort to the way of violence so that the kingdom of God might come, even if it comes through the sword. And Josephus, who is arguably the most prolific writer of Jewish thought, notes that zealots agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an invaluable attachment to liberty. 
and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. And thus they will do whatever it takes to make that happen. And quite frankly, you can overlay zealots upon both conservatives and liberals in today's society. It's more an adjective for each people group. And liberty is typically the God that they are fighting for. The God of hands off my body is a more liberal stance, but it is still covered in liberty, right? Gender, abortion, marriage, all in the name of personal liberty. The God of hands off my stuff is a more conservative stance, but still covered in liberty. Taxes, business regulations, the financial system at large. We all have our gods that we will name in the name of liberty. And here's our reality. We don't live with an emperor. And what is certainly more true now than it was then for followers of Jesus is that we have some say, some choice in the matter, some power to elect and choose at some level who will govern us. You did not elect people in Rome. And if you were a common person, you just lived with the reality of whoever was in charge. It is a unique and profound privilege at the time and era in which we live that should not be taken lightly. And yet here we are, 2023, we are about to enter into a very, another very contentious, big personality, highly opinionated election cycle. I looked it up this week. The first Republican primary debate is in August and is like four months away. Um, yeah, everyone just take a collective <laughs> sigh. Um, and it will be so easy and natural to give yourself over to the entertainment because that is what it is. And the attention and probably in the probability for sides to be taken and lines to be drawn, the vortexes of political theater will suck you in. And my encouragement is two things. Um, you can be involved politically. I mean, at one level, there is love of neighbor that comes through things like city council, the voting booth, advocating for certain policies that folks say they are committed to reforming for the betterment of society. There is good and a, I would say, a Jesus-honoring ethic to political involvement. I think to not be involved is to absolve yourself of loving your neighbor through the means of democracy. However... Our lifestyle as a church is to hold the line of Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. If you love Jesus, you are politically homeless in this country in 2023. It doesn't mean that you might not have certain tendencies or might not lean certain ways politically. But to vote Republican or to vote Democrat is not what it means to be Christian. The elephant and the donkey do not represent the lamb. The lamb, however, is used to bolster the elephant and the donkey. But both Republicans and Democrats as parties are not interested in your allegiance to Jesus. They are interested in using Jesus as a prop for your political allegiance to them. And it's all over the place, right? Signs, photo ops, scriptures, slogans, you name it. And I say this um, not lightly. When the scriptures speak of using the Lord's name in vain, this is what is being referred to. 
And when the Scriptures speak of God not being mocked, this is what is being referred to. And ever since the days of Jesus, there have been religious people who have craved power, influence, and expediency, and will, will do whatever is necessary to get it. If you look at Matthew 22, there's a, it's a fascinating uh, story. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, which is Jesus, in his own words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, there is not enough time to show you the context of all that's happening here or even what they are trying to do. But let me tell you what is the most surprising element of this entire text. The people involved. The Pharisees are partnering up with the Herodians. And you're like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? I don't know who they are. So the Pharisees are the fundamentalist of the day. And the Herodians were the liberal, secular partiers of the day. Herod the Great was an awful ruler, and he's sort of notoriously known for being awful. But his son, Herod Antipas, was a massive partier. He was the life of the party. If you go watch The Passion of the Christ, he is the one who kind of like stumbles out with like just, I mean, completely smashed. Um, and that is what he is known for historically. Uh, he was an icon of secularism. And the Herodians were a people, or a group of people, who were interested in advancing the interest of the Herodian family. So the Pharisees are the fundamentalists. <laughs> the Herodians are the partiers. They are on opposite ends of the spectrum. They do not see the world the same way whatsoever. This is, this is the NRA and the ACLU is getting together for a massive celebration, a common cause. They hate each other. And if you were a Jew listening to this gospel account, this is a record scratch moment. The Herodians and the Pharisees together. Why? Power, expediency, influence. Jesus has become a threat to their status in controlling the world. And so they will do whatever means necessary, even if it means buddying up with their enemy to gain back that power. The outcomes of losing societal control means they will go to great lengths to ensure that does not happen again. The call of a follower of Jesus is not first how to gain control, but how to surrender it, including political outcomes. And if you consider the life of the early church, there were a few unique qualities that are highlighted, and they were significant then, and again, while it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, they feel equally significant now. And I've shared these before, but they are significantly worth repeating. And the first is that the early church was multi-ethnic. You cannot read the early church. You cannot read the uh, 
Acts, book of Acts, and not see an ethnically diverse global phenomenon that the Spirit of God is sweeping through humanity. The letter to the church at Ephesus is way more controversial than we would like to admit because we look at the first two chapters of this sort of horizontal bridging the gap between God and us established in Jesus. But it's the next three chapters that get a little bit more sensitive. And he says in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is not speaking of the mystery of God that's come down to earth in this situation. He is speaking of the mystery of the people of God not being confined to the Jews. It's the mystery that Yahweh is the Savior and healer and restorer of the world, not of a particular people group. That's what he has come to bridge, not only a relationship to himself, but a relationship to other people. The reason, if you read Acts and Ephesians, the reason the gospel is so offensive is not because God came to die. It's because God came to die for the group I don't like. Then it was a commitment to the poor. It was expected in most religions and tribes that you would care for those marginalized in your religion and tribe. That was expected. Care for people who are in your camp. But to care for those outside your camp was unheard of. And at the cost of their own lives, disciples of Jesus would stay in cities where plagues would come and would give their lives to those on the margins who would give nothing materially in return. A vision of a different way of being human. They also opposed infanticide, particularly that of girls. In societies where lineage and legacy are tied to the patriarch of the family, having too many girls would do nothing to further the line. And while abortion was actually quite rare and very dangerous, once a child was birthed, it was not uncommon to leave that child on top of a trash heap to die. And here Christians come in and care for the most vulnerable humans in society. And then they, were, they, they made a radical commitment to confine themselves to the, to the commitment of sex within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. People argue today that, Seth, a, that the sex ethic in culture is, quote, out of bounds, but it's literally no different than it was in Roman societies, where women were expected to have sex within the bounds of marriage, but men were told they could not control their libido And thus it was expected that they would have sex with those on the lower end of the social ladder, like children and slaves and prostitutes. It was seen as a physical appetite that was irresistible. And here, the church comes along and presents an entirely new way of being human, of expressing sexuality. Sex then was not merely about a dose of hormones, but about personal sacrifice that would give way to self giving love. It was about an egalitarian point of view, viewing all people as equal and rejecting the double standards of gender and class. And it showed something else. Restraint. It showed that self-control is actually an exercise in human freedom. And it showed that to be a slave meant giving in to every impulse. But the definition of freedom is the supernatural spirit-empowered ability to control one's base desires. And while this is not a perfect one-to-one comparison of the early church to now, it's fairly clear if you read between the lines. The first two tend to fall more on the progressive end. The latter two tend to fall on more of a conservative end. But then there was one marker 
that cuts across all political ideologies, especially now. And that is radical forgiveness. In a shame and honor culture, which is the world the New Testament is placed in, in which the West, by the way, is slowly becoming, vengeance was the way of retaliation. If shamed, you came back. If humiliated, you retaliate. If ridiculed, you repay with violence. And because Christians were often excluded, criticized, and actively attacked via physical persecution or otherwise, they would offer a very, very strange message to a world of honor and shame. And that is, you are forgiven. The right and the left offer no such way. The mob mentality of turn or burn is very much alive in our public discourse. Forgiveness is seen as a source of weakness. You're rolling over. You're giving in. But in fact, it is forgiveness that is a source of strength. The last words of God on earth before he died. Father, forgive them. There was so much he could have said. And yet the early church takes its cues from both their substitute and their example. When Jesus is literally being killed, the last words out of his mouth, forgive, forgive, forgive. This is not a third way or some sort of middle ground between the right and the left, between progressives and conservatives. This way actually transcends the entire system. How? How does... (laughs) How does one have markers of a church like that? Cross ethnic and economic lines, a clarion call to care for the most vulnerable in our society, and a commitment to a countercultural way of living out one's sexuality and expressing forgiveness. How does one do that? Well, against what is there no such law? Against peace. Against faithfulness against joy, against gentleness and self-control. There is no law against any of that. The way to do that is to receive the power of the Holy Spirit that gives and enables and empowers you to showcase a different kind of kingdom that worships a different kind of king that is not about gaining power but about giving it up. And then Peter gives four brief exhortations as citizens before he moves on to a specific groups of people. His first exhortation is to honor everyone. Honoring everyone means talking to them over talking about them. I believe, by the way, the church is called to morally confront a society. I think there is something to to that. I think we should not shy away from the beautiful vision God is inviting us all into. But our issues currently revolve around the fact that the church has moved away from conversations with society to more conversations about society. For some reason, we find it much more compelling to talk about issues than to talk to people who those issues deeply affect. It is a lot easier and it has become a lot uglier. It was my freshman year in college where I stopped watching cable news or listening to any type of uh, political talk show. And after reflecting back on it, the reason I stopped watching it was not because it was too salacious, not because it was based in fear, 
not because they projected opinions I did not agree with. I stopped watching it because it was boring. It was boring. Every single trope, every caricature, every type of mischaracterization of someone was what kept the shows running. And people were only being brought on the shows that furthered the respective stereotypes. And I just thought they are literally bringing nothing to the table. It would be wildly more compelling and a whole lot more entertaining if they were to actually bring some semblance of honor and dignity to the discussion. But instead of having conversations that would bring about, I don't know, enlightenment or compassion or insights, they just play to their base and further the divide. And then I realized something. Oh no. Five to six years of high school of watching and downloading and listening to the political pundits give their respective hot takes, I have become that type of person. Am I honoring people in our community to whom I would say I wholeheartedly see the world differently than you? To honor our community, to respect our community, to dignify our community is to grant them the freedom to think for themselves and then to lovingly engage. Years ago, one of our neighbors who sees the world very differently from me, whose sexual orientation is very different from mine, who would not call himself a disciple of Jesus, started hanging out at our fence post and having weekly chats. And I remember in one of our early interactions, he asked me the dreaded question of anyone who is in my position. So, what do you do? Well, I actually just became a pastor. And to my shock and to my own shame, he didn't balk at that. He just talked about his own experience in churches, his own experience with who he perceived to be God. And then we continued on. That was nearly four years ago. Now we communicate pretty much every week. We get a meal once a month. We have had some profound conversations around life and death and suicide and sexuality and family history and eternity. We have discussed our own wounds. We have shared stories of our own shortcomings. We have swapped questions about the consequences of personal ethics being played out in the social sphere and even shared some of our shared grievances about our state of affairs in the world. I have walked gardens with him. I have walked our street with him. I have sat at his kitchen table. And I have a newfound friendship. And I haven't budged or compromised anything that I believed four years ago. In fact, I would argue I believe it more now than I did then. But I have changed. I, I have never been more convinced that someone who I inherently, wholeheartedly do not see the world the exact same way with was made in the image of the invisible God. Far greater than a stereotype or a caricature, he is someone to be loved prayerfully into the kingdom. My conviction is that he is someone that the Father is pursuing. And my prayer for him is that he's going to look up one day amidst some of the gravest, most unspeakable grief that has accompanied his life, grief that I hope no one in this room ever experiences. And he's going to see that the crucified Savior both identifies with his sufferings, covers his shame, forgives his sin, and is waiting to throw a party when he returns. 
what would it mean to honor our neighbors? We are becoming well-versed in our society at shaming them, less versed in honoring them, dignifying them, treating them as beautiful and broken people, which, by the way, are just like me and you. My heart for us is that people would see us as a holy conundrum. They would see our radical fidelity to Jesus and his kingdom and be overwhelmed that the love of God has become so real and is so experienced in this church that it is actually pulsing through our life when we interact with other people. When Jesus walked the streets, he upended both religious and non-religious people's expectations of God. The non-synagogue-going Gentiles thought they couldn't get near God, and the devout Jews thought they deserved God. And my desire is that we would live our lives in such a way that we know there is literally nothing we could do that would merit God's favor and affection, and that his love that once seemed so out of reach for us is nearer than our next breath. Acts 17, 26 to 27 is the greatest apologetic scripture, I think, in the, in the Bible. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having predetermined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Our call is not to change American politics. It's to live as free people in a society in which God is inviting neighbors into another kingdom where his presence is nearer than your next breath. That is the call. Second, he says to love the brotherhood. Unity, which can be a laying down of personal opinions for the sake of the whole, is the definition of cruciform love. Unity, by the way, does not mean that you see the world the exact same way or vote the exact same way or have the same core outlooks on political solutions to nationwide problems. America, if you didn't know this, is a highly complicated and complex nation. And while there might be issues that you feel are very black and white, and even scripturally the arguments can be made for those issues being black and white, the solutions to those respective issues and how those outcomes can come about might not be so black and white. We are becoming a culture in which there are red churches and there are blue churches. There are Republican churches and there are Democratic churches, and that feels grossly off to me. Echo chambers and social media algorithms and narrow viewpoints might gain you a lot of intellectual support from people who already think like you, but they will not gain you your soul. In fact, the fastest way to lose your soul is to demonize anyone who sees the world a little differently than you do, especially those within the family of God. Jesus pulls someone from a group of zealots named Simon who had been discipled enough by the zealot community to most likely be carrying around a machete in his belt because he was always ready for a good fight always believing in the latest conspiracy theory, always looking for reasons to be suspicious and act on those suspicions. And Jesus said, I want you to follow me. And then he pulled Matthew, the tax collector, the one who was decreed by Roman rule to go out into the respective counties and collect taxes for Rome and add on percentages of taxes for himself. And no one could argue with him because there was a Roman seal on the contract to not pay the taxes 
whether it was 5% or 35%, was to defy Rome. And to defy Rome was a death sentence. So Jesus takes a violent revolutionary ready to set Rome on fire in the name of God. And he takes a big government pawn who lied, cheated, and stole his way up the ladder. And he says to both of them, not only do I want you to both follow me, but you are now his brother. You are now his brother. And you are invited into the journey of a lifetime, a life of sibling love that supersedes your core political convictions. This, by the way, is the way of death that leads to the way of life. Why? Because an allegiance to King Jesus and his family goes through a cross. If you are not willing to lay aside some personal political convictions for the greater ethic of superior supernatural love, then you are not ready to give your allegiance to the king. It doesn't mean you can't have political opinions. It just means that you, when you'd rather when you'd rather hold your political convictions at the cost of loving your neighbor, you have missed the kingdom. And then he says to fear God. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, which means that God is our allegiance, our authority, and our desire, our ultimate reverence is due him. Lest we become overly familiar with the comings and goings of Christianity and we miss the big picture, God is here. I have shared this quote before, but I think it is too good to, um, to pass up again. This is a, uh, Annie Dillard quote who is, writes in a, her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. My hope and aim for this church is that you would walk out of here every Sunday we meet. And you would walk out of every MC where you meet. And you would think the story is too good to be true. The love is too great. The mercy too big. The sacrifice too large. The joy too overwhelming. I want that for us. I pray that for us. I want your view and experience of God to be the kindest, most gracious, most loving, most just Father. That is how the scriptures speak of Him. That is how Jesus speaks of Him. And the only way you get there is to reckon with the fact that you are dealing with the living God. You cannot on your own bear to literally stand in His presence. A mere cursory reading of the Scriptures just at face value should leave us a lot more on our face than it does. I mean, the accounts of folks in the Bible who come up against the living God are not fairy tales. They're holy encounters and they have a lasting effect. Sometimes they leave people healed. And sometimes they leave people forgiven. And sometimes they leave people delivered. And sometimes... They leave people blind, like Paul. And sometimes they leave people deaf, like Zechariah. And they even might leave people dead, like Ananias and Sapphira. 
I am not saying God is out here smiting people left and right. What I am saying is that the writer of Hebrews should be listened to. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or later in 1 Peter, he says, judgment begins where? Right here at the household of God. Rediscovering your first love means reacquainting yourself with the beauty of God. But it is not the threat of violence that we are concerned with with God. It's our threat of violence as we approach his good and beautiful light. And finally, honor the emperor means living as a godly citizen under an imperfect regime. Remembering that the how we go about this is greater than whatever the outcomes are. God gives us good government. And just government is a grace. And of course, we know that there are people in governments all over the world that do not act justly. There are people in places of government in our city that do not act justly. I mean, Sarah and I are currently in a situation right now. I'm, and I say right now as in like within the last 24 hours where we believe that a particular agency within the State Department is acting particularly unjust. So this sermon is not some thought experiment about what it means to honor those in authority as if it doesn't have real-time implications. This week has been very confronting to me because I find some of the decisions this particular agency is making morally appalling. So there is a tension here. What does honoring those in authority look like when it appears those in authority are doing harm? What does it mean for us to adhere to the powerful decisions being made when those decisions seem deeply out of step, not only with what it means to care for the most vulnerable, but also what it means to read your own mission statement? Let me be clear, I don't have an answer. I have had to have my own hard dialogue with Jesus this week. And by the way, it has been deeply disturbing. And I just keep going back to Jesus' interactions with Pilate. He surrendered to a morally compromised leader with a sham trial where a mob took over and political pressure outweighed moral integrity. And I don't think, by the way, that Jesus was good with that. And somehow, he was differentiated enough to submit to it. And it wasn't... I think we are just too quick to skip over it. And be like, well, God is going to do what God's going to do. God became a human being who experienced the widest range of emotions that you can experience as a human being. And so when he looked a morally compromised leader in the face and said, you have no authority, but the authority that is given to you by the Father, that to me is saying, I am not good with what you are doing. And you're going to bend to the pressure of the mob mentality that you are looking over in the face because you care enough you care more about your position in power than you do about your integrity of putting an innocent man to public humiliating death. It is not an easy squaring of that dilemma. And through false charges, 
physical and psychological abuse, public mockery, and capital murder, the kingdom of God was born. And it is difficult for me to even say that to you with integrity like I believe it. But it is also the ultimate perspective check for me. Because God's rule and reign on earth did not come through Julius Caesar. It did not come through Nero. It did not come through Alexander the Great. It did not come through President Trump. Or will it come through President Biden? Nor is it coming through the various departments and agencies that are put in place to protect, serve, and nurture. Though I think we should call them to account. The kingdom of God is not coming in through laws and decrees. It is coming in like a mustard seed. It starts breaking in at fence posts, around kitchen tables, in conversations with people whose experience is not like yours. And humility and restraint begin to get birthed, and rage and fear begin to subside. And all of a sudden you realize, in some of the most unjust, inhumane, hell-on-earth rulings that have significant and real ramifications for real people, somehow God is weaving the story like yeast in dough. Invisible for a while. And then bread. And we look back 2,000 years later and realize the kingdom of God is not coming how I would draw it up. But through slaves and women and children and houses that pray and citizens that care and churches that are committed to the whole gospel for the whole world. See, if we were up to us, we would, and we think it is, we think, we act, by the way, like it is up to us. So we elect a leader, we promote the executor, we use presidential medallions and laws to change the world. God uses his lowly, insignificant people. That by his spirit, we do his work so that the world may believe that God is king and the king has come to show us that the way of life is not seeking to gain power, but to give it up. Let's pray. King Jesus, would you help us? We want to honor you with our life. We want to honor you as citizens of this kingdom. And yet, there are so many things that are competing for our allegiance, especially in the world of public policy. And so we just invite you, even in this moment, to do a work in our heart. To change us, to reform us, to show us a more beautiful vision of what it means to be human. Give us courage and give us humility. Great humility. To engage with love, compassion, justice, and mercy. May we be a people so enamored with you that we cannot help but affect how our world looks here. But the means of how it looks matter. How we go about this matters. Lord, help us. Help us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 